Yes, so I'm delighted to be joined by Nicola Danilov, who is the founder and um, runs the Singularity Weblog, also the YouTube channel and podcast. I think the YouTube channel has something like 3 million views alone. Um, so it's very prominent in futurist transhumanist circles. It's also the author of Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century. So I mean, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, James. I mean, the, the, the first place to start, I guess, I mean, do you think the thing that a technological singularity, so um, technology becoming so advanced and self-sustainable, it kind of vastly outpaces our, our human abilities, is inevitable? Do I think if it is inevitable? Yeah. I really have problems with the word inevitable. And I have, that's another reason why I have problem with the word also prediction or predicting the future. Yeah. And here's the problem with it. When you say that something is inevitable, then we might as well sit down on the couch, order pizza and beer and watch Netflix until the end of the world, whether it's a utopia or a dystopia. Yeah. Because the moment you say that something is inevitable, you're saying there's nothing I can do about it. And that's not how the world works. The world may be complicated and we may be infinitely small specks in an infinitely small speck in an endless universe. and yet we have the butterfly effect. So we can make a difference and we can even make a really big difference. And the future is not a place that we arrive at. It is not a destination. It's not somewhere that we end up going. It is a place that we create and we create it with what we're doing. So when you're saying that the future is inevitable, whether with respect to the singularity or what, whatever else you may want to call inevitable, it's like saying, there's nothing I will do about it. It's like giving up. It's like becoming a passive spectator, an observer, and, and making the future sort of like a TV show where you are a passive audience. Instead, what I want to sort of inspire and, and motivate my audience and people in general to do is to jump on the stage, to stop being spectators, to become participants. And then the future is absolutely not inevitable. You know, then we can say, we are not going to let the future happen to us. We are going to create the future. And that's also why I really hate predictions, because once you make a prediction about the future, then for ego reasons for reputation reasons and for another for a bunch of other reasons you're committed to that specific version of the future and then you always start comparing the prediction that you made with sort of the trends and whether it's going that way or not and then you try to do everything in your power to kind of shift or steer the future towards that direction where you predicted it will be instead i think it's a lot healthier to take the ancient greek approach the stoic approach of the future and even the buddhist approach of the future which is you know the eastern rather than the western approach and that's to say let us just focus on the present and do the best that we possibly can the future will take care of itself however if we actually focus on the present and what we value most what we want to accomplish most and more importantly what is it that we can do to our best abilities right now and if we focus on that present moment and what we can do now, then the future will take care of itself and it will end up being probably one of the better futures. 
And that's why I dislike both predicting and the word inevitable. And also there's a third reason, which is kind of like a teleological reason, if you will. And that's the reason that uh, you see there is this kind of a direction um, of the universe. Uh, and, and, you know, Ray Kurzweil has the six epochs of the technological singularity. Uh, and he starts with first uh, chemi- uh, sort of a chem- physics and chemistry, where info- information is stored at the, at the chemics, uh, ke- chemistry and physics level. Then it goes to the biology level, let's say DNA. Then it goes to the uh, brain level, uh, intelligent species such as humanity. Then it goes to the technological level where we store techno- uh, information at sort of, you know, hard drives and microprocessors and things like that. Then the fifth stage is where we have sort of the merger of technology and biology. And then the sixth and the ultimate stage is where the universe wakes up and we have this smart dust and everything. And, you know, this is kind of a very teleological kind of a religious uh, take on the way that the, the, the direction of the universe goes from, from less to more intelligence. And I don't think there's any evidence towards that really. Uh, and I don't think that uh, even if there is some evidence of uh, of creating intelligence, it is more teleonomic, which is to say directed by natural processes. And we don't, there's no ultimate stage of the universe. You know, natural selection throws everything at the wall and there is no ultimate stage where it accomplishes its mission to wake up the universe and smart dust uh, and you know, the stupid dust and dumb universe becomes a smart universe with where even the the dust is now intelligent and stuff like that. And, you know, we have giant computroniums and giant Matryoshka brains. Those things could happen, but that would not be the pinnacle of the uh, evolution of the universe. Just like we ourselves, uh, who allegedly call ourselves Homo sapiens, that is to say, smart uh, species. Uh, of course, we couldn't name ourselves anything less than, than being smart or intelligent. We are not the pinnacle of evolution. We are not the end of it. We're just a step in the process of evolution. And it is not a teleological fulfillment that we have come to be where we are, but rather it is a result of teleonomic process of natural selection, which has brought us to where we are, but we are a tiny step in an ever-growing process. And we don't know where we're going because there's no direction and things can change all the time, absolutely fundamentally to 180 degrees. I mean, do you think the world's current political leaders, particularly in the West, appreciate just how much technological change there could be um, and just how kind of powerful, influential this could be? Is is there kind of a gap between the Western scientists and Western politicians? You know, the short answer is no, they don't. Uh, and and you can see that uh, in a number of, of of ways. For example, in the United States, you still have uh, at least a handful of Congress people in Congress. I hope now they're less than a handful who don't use email and are proud of that. I mean, we are in the twenty first century, and some of those elected representatives don't use email. There's others who don't know the first thing about science and uh, unfortunately are also proud of that 
And what's even worse is that some of them have even been appointed to run the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, right? So generally, there's this, there's been, and the United States, especially in the developed world, is, is kind of the leader uh, of the movement against science with anti-vaxxers, with climate deniers, uh, with religious fanatics of any sort, uh, and people who are proudly waving the anti-science flag. And we live in a scientific world. We live in a world where everything around us, uh, the way we are talking to each other right now, the reason why I have light here right now, the reason why I have a comfortable temperature inside, while outside is minus eight degrees Celsius and things like that, is all because of science. And and the fact that many of the biggest political re leaders um, have very poor to, to no understanding of compound interest, or uh, because compound interest is a representation or one example of exponential growth. They don't understand science. Uh, they don't understand cause and effect even, but have these kind of uh, outdated, in some case, religious beliefs, in some case, just like uh, economic interests to not, you know, believe the science or anything like that. And yes, th that's, that's absolutely a very huge problem. Now, the good news is that, you know, we have at the same time many, many places and people who are very well educated in terms of science, uh, in terms of exponential growth, in terms of uh, advanced technology. Uh, so it's still an open question which worldview is going to uh, dominate the world. So it looks like right now the anti-scientific, anti-exponential growth, or let me just broadly call it the ignorant approach, right? The approach which says it's better to be ignorant because ignorance is, a, is bliss. That's the dominant view in the United States. But I don't think that's the dominant view in the world in general, uh, and especially in sort of like the West in general. And I think actually the current world crisis that we are in right now ought to strengthen the evidence behind the pro-science um, point of view. And one of the upsides of the of the current COVID-19 uh, crisis uh, would be that the anti-vaxxers uh, position, which is specifically uh, un uh, against the vaccines, but, but also generally anti-scientific, um, would have uh, less and less evidence behind it and a mountain of evidence against it. Uh, in the current situation. So, so, and there could be many upsides of, of this current crisis. This could be, and this, I believe, will be one of them. So, but, 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 so there's still this kind of monumental struggle between the science and anti science and, and some outdated, archaic religious beliefs. Uh, it's still an open question which uh, will prevail in the long run. But I am uh, I'm optimistic that that uh, you know science and and generally um, knowledge would and wisdom even more important than knowledge in science will, will hopefully prevail. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that sort of like I said over the last few years, a growing number of transhumanists have become, I guess, concerned about uh, you know the issue you raise about people ignoring the science, 
and they're becoming increasingly involved in politics. So obviously, yeah, we had Zoltan's presidential role in America. We've got trans-unist parties popping up all over the world, including in the UK. I mean, why do you think transhumanists is becoming more politically active? And do you think that's the right approach? Do you think that's the kind of the, the sense of way of steering debate? Well, so I think you have certain personalities, transhumanist or not, which are always attracted to politics. Yeah. Take Zoltan. Zoltan is a populist, right? So he would do anything that he can in order to attract attention. So, for example, he would say something like, well, I really care about refugees. I really am compassionate about refugees. Why don't we uh, implant uh, microchips in every single refugee or, uh, or other person who comes uh, undocumented to the United States of America and then start monitoring each and every uh, movement and, and action and what they do and where they go and all of that, right? So on the one hand, you say you profess compassion, and on the other hand, you choose a solution which is absolutely sort of incompatible with, with sort of basic privacy and even the, the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and, and that's one of many, many such cases. And the, reasons, the reason why he does that is simply because that would ga gain him media attention. Because uh, so he is no different from Trump in the sense that he's very skilled at playing the media. He's very skilled at garnering attention. So the reason why Zoltan is involved in politics is not because uh, he's a transhumanist, but because he thinks he would make a good president. I mean, watch the documentaries about him and he looks at himself in the mirror and he says, I think I'm going to make a good president. Right. The, the, that's the starting belief. It's not the starting belief transhumanism would be a good policy directive. The starting belief is like, I am going to make a good president. And transhumanism is just the tool, the means to an end. But the end is me being a president. So we have to be careful. There's a lot of, uh, and that's why Plato, two and a half thousand years ago, said that those who want to rule the most are the least qualified to rule and we should be mo most beware of them right so so now transhumanism in general or at least the the sort of pro-scientific uh uh transhumanist uh awareness of exponential growth and, and advanced technology can inform policy and can inform policymakers uh, to make better decisions and to uh, come up with new solutions to older problems. So I think that's where uh, transhumanism can make a big difference. But I don't see it as a, it's not even a coherent uh, political movement because you have socialists and you have extreme libertarians in it, right? So you have people like Max Moore and, uh, of course, Zoltan is a big Ayn Rand fan. And, and even his book, The Transhumanist Wager, is like, I don't know, The Fountainhead or, or Atlas Shrugged, something in between The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged for transhumanism, basically. Right? And then you have on the other end of the spectrum people such as uh, James Hughes and many others sort of very progressive 
very uh, socialist or left-leaning. And then I think one of my favorite people actually is uh, uh, an Englishman, or maybe he's a Welshman, he said, uh, <laughs> David Wood, uh, who is kind of like sort of in the he's center. Fish, I believe. I, I, I spoke to him, weirdly, I spoke to him a couple of days ago. Yeah, is he a Welshman? No, he's, he's Scottish. He's Scottish, okay. All right, because I remember when I was interviewing him, he was joking that, you know, he's been living in, in, in uh, England or in London for such and such time, and he still doesn't understand English people. And, <laughs> and anyway, but he was joking, of course. But, uh, yeah, so I think he's kind of like what done very good work, uh, sort of that straddles the center uh, with a number of very good practical and useful ideas where transhumanism can inform and direct uh, and help uh, guide policy uh, or even inform policy in terms of practical applications. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's been very helpful. I really like David and I think his books are great. I mean, does it concern you at all that you sometimes get the impression that, as I say, I mean, you, you've kind of mentioned that, you know, Western politicians generally aren't taking all this stuff that seriously. Does it ever concern you that some of the people who do seem to be taking all this stuff more seriously are um, some of the more authoritarian politicians? So people like um, Xi Jinping really taking, you know, AI and gene editing and that kind of stuff. He's clearly very interesting, taking it very seriously. I mean, you know, even Putin talking about he who, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but he, he, he who uh, masters AI will, will rule the future, something like that. Will rule the world. Well, exactly. I mean, does yeah. it concern that while politicians in democratic countries seem to be kind of slow off their feet on this, and, and some of the kind of the main leaders in democratic countries are, are scientists and perhaps tech leaders, tech giants, people like, you know, Elon Musk, but whereas in uh, more authoritarian countries, they seem to be taking this stuff more seriously. Does that, does that concern you at all? So, yes, it concerns me, but I, I don't think that the leaders in Western countries are generally scientists. I think they're most usually lawyers and people like that or business people. The only scientist I can think, think of off the top of my head is Angela Merkel. Uh, she's the scientist. And as you can see, Germany is doing very well uh, in the current uh, global crisis. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that first, they have one of the most advanced and most uh, sort of progressive and liberal health systems. Uh, with extra spare capacity. Uh, but secondly, uh, uh, being a scientist, actually, uh, Angela M Merkel really understands exponential growth. And so she was one of their, uh, the most proactive one uh, to react very early on in the crisis. Well, let's say, for example, Macron was in denial and going and visiting old age homes in Paris and, and you know, uh, that that happened over and over again in, in the Western world. Uh, but Angela Merkel reacted very early and very quickly on. Uh, now, going back to your question, yes, uh, it concerns me because uh, whether it will be a Chinese singularity or an American singularity or a European singularity or a Japanese singularity, it would make a difference. The context that... Uh, well, so so... Putting aside the question of how uh, likely uh, the singularities or, or what's the timeline towards it, if we just focus on the context, the context is very important. So, and that would be culturally sort of predisposed, if you will. Uh, so, for example, if you have a singularity in the context of a military lab, 
then that that kind of an AI which was born in a military lab would likely see humans or at least a very large chunk of humans as enemies because it would have been born in a military context, right? Uh, if it's born uh, in a certain kind of, uh, let's say, open source environment, then it may see people perhaps more likely, uh, not as enemies, but perhaps as, as partners, uh, as collaborators. Um, if it is born in a sort of a commercial context, like let's say Google or Amazon or Facebook, then it would likely see people as uh, products or clients. You know, either products to be sold and bargained for, or uh, clients that 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 can be uh, you know sold to. Uh, uh, if it's Chinese or, or American or British, uh, naturally it would have its own sort of cultural baggage, right? So, for example, if it's Chinese, it would consider itself. Uh, 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 it would have sort of like pro-Chinese biases. I'm sure it would have embedded pro-Chinese Communist Party biases, right? Uh, and it would uh, favor its own country, its own system, its own government, its own markets, etc. The same with American AI. You know, it would uh, favor the American system a lot more laissez-faire than, let's say, Western Europe. Very different than China. And, you know, the Chinese AI would consider China to be the center of the world, this thousand-year-old empire. The American AI would do the same for with America being the center of the world, etc. Each context comes up with a whole slew of cultural baggage, a whole narrative, if you will. That's probably a better word, which would then impact on not only the way that particular AI perceives the world and perceives humanity in general, but also how it sees itself, what it's origin is and what its purpose is and what its ultimate goal or end is, right? So each of those uh, is very important. I mean, do you think that debates over how we integrate increasingly powerful AI into our society and also into what extent humans should be able to modify their innate biology, do you think those kind of two questions will be two of the most fundamental political issues of this century and potentially you know, going forward? Um, and tend to one of the biggest sources of political conflict? Well, the way I like to posit it is, is a little bit broader than that even, right? AI is a type of technology, but we have many, many other technologies. And then the other one that you mentioned was uh, uh, human enhancement, yeah. right? But that's also another type of technology. But we have many other technologies such as nuclear power or nuclear weapons, space, etc. So all of those are just examples of the same thing. You know, there's no such thing as global warming. There's no such thing as AI. There's no such thing as species extinction. Um, there's no such thing as, uh, you know, um, dangerous with respect to human enhancement. It is all one and the same thing. And it is basically uh, humanity's technological power, arguably, uh, far surpassing our wisdom to apply it. And then, so so that's the overarching thing, is that our techno power is growing this fast, but our wisdom to applying, to applying it is probably at much lower pace, if at all. 
And then those uh, those examples, nuclear energy, global warming, AI, you know, surveillance, uh, uh, species extinction, environmental destruction, you name it, those are all just examples of the same thing over and over again, right? Uh, so, so the key here, I, I want to say is that, and that's why I want to bring it under this broad umbrella, is that as long as our technological power supersedes our ability to control it and to moderate it and to be wise about when and how we apply it, then we're going to be doing more damage than good. Whether it's with respect to AI, whether it's with respect to human enhancement, whether it's with respect to global warming or what have you, right? But the moment we start actually thinking more about the why and the how, and not uh, the why and the what, rather, and not so much about the how, because technology is just a, a how. Technology is the how we do things. It's a tool. It's a means to an end. It is not why we do things, and it's not what we should be doing in the first place, right? That's a crucial point that we have to understand. There's a priority list, and technology is not at the top of the priority. It's in the middle or the bottom. At best, it's in the middle, right? So first you have to start with what you want to do and then you discover what's the best way to do it. And then there's different technologies or different means towards accomplishing that goal. But the why is the primary factor. That's why we don't do technology or we shouldn't be doing technology for its own sake, but only towards the degree and with, with respect to the goals that we posit ourselves to begin with, right? And, and that's why we have to always keep sure that make sure that you know the horse is in front of the cart and the cart is technology. The horse still should be us. We should be in charge of technology. We shouldn't be allowing technology to be in charge of us. Right? And the moment we forget, that's how the priorities should be. First, we lose control. Second, we start damaging the world and damaging our own selves. Because then you have, you know, the cart running all over the place and breaking stuff. And finally, then you become basically a follower or a subservient, uh, you know, to technology rather than a director or user of, right? And that's why we should always keep that in mind. Yeah. Now, one argument I've heard quite a few times in transhumanism, it kind of links back very much back to what you've been saying, is obviously humans, um, as we currently exist, we have basically the same biology that we evolved with you know, a few thousand years ago, when we were living in a very different society. Um, so things like our propensity towards extreme tribalism, um, violence, that kind of thing, which which didn't matter that much in a, you know, realistic society because the weapon we were playing around with wasn't that dangerous. When you combine that with nuclear weapons um, and with the, the technology we're going to or, or likely going to develop, um, it could be potentially catastrophic. I mean, do you think that there's an argument that humans we need to alter um, human biology, even that or augment it with AI, so have some kind of AI help system um, to, to prevent ourselves essentially having a very serious risk of extinction. You see, I haven't seen any evidence that that's the case. Uh, I know uh, maybe last time or, or if you interviewed Andrew Sandberg and he was pushing forward the argument that, uh, you know, uh, more intelligence and human enhancement could help us be make better in what he called more moral decisions. And yet he gave absolutely zero evidence to support that claim. 
And even during that same interview, Anders himself admitted that we don't even know how it, it works and that so far, even at best, we can do things like, for example, increase alertness, uh, increase focus uh, and, and things like that. But we can't even enhance, in, quote, intelligence per se, right? And, and even so, so we right now we can't even in, enhance intelligence. We in, increase the speed that we make our decisions at. We increase focus. We increase alertness and stuff like that. Uh, we increase our ability to fight off sleep and exhaustion and things like that. So we give ourselves more endurance, but that doesn't necessarily make us more intelligent. Let's assume that we find a way to do that, though. Let's assume that we find some kind of either genetical or pharmacological way with smart drugs, etc., to give ourselves more um, intelligence. Then you still have another jump to go up, another order of magnitude, because intelligence doesn't necessarily translate into morality, into more moral decision. It doesn't translate necessarily into less violence. It doesn't necessarily mean at all actually more compassion, right? Those are completely, completely different things. And in my opinion, actually, they're decoupled from intelligence, completely decoupled from intelligence. Um, so, for example, if you look at Albert Einstein's experience, he was thoroughly disgusted by... Uh, most of his colleagues uh, at the university in, uh, in Berlin, because, you know, at the time, uh, we're talking 1920s, 1930s, Berlin was the center of the world in terms of science. The best and the brightest scientists in the world were Albert Einstein's colleagues. And yet, almost overnight, all of those smartest people in the world, most intelligent people in the world, many of whom were literally geniuses in their own um, fields of science, became extreme German nationalists. And so absolutely no issue whatsoever switching from their focus of scientific interest to producing weapons of mass destruction, right? Whether it's mustard gas, chemical weapons, uh, you know, uh, FAL-1, FAL-2 missiles, you name it, with, with, with which they were bombing London and, and etc. right? You name it. So those were the smartest people in the world. And you can still see that today. You know, it is not the case that the smartest people in the world, in, in smartest in the sense of science uh, and technology or business or what have you, or chess, necessarily are the most compassionate or the most moral people. Uh, or the most necessarily peaceful people. Those are completely, completely different things. And again, so far, I have seen zero evidence that first, more intelligence means less violence uh, or less um, uh, or more compassion. Um, but but secondly, I've seen zero evidence in how we can either pharmacologically or genetically enhance our morality, right? Uh, um, Anders Sandberg basically presumed that we can enhance our mor morality with genetic manipulation. Where's the evidence for that? You know, that's like saying uh, moral decisions are a very complex, complicated uh, uh, thing. 
and there's no such thing as as the the good person or the moral person gene it doesn't exist you know it's not like oh we have the moral person gene we flick this on and then you become an evil monster we flick this off and then you're such a good and you know you're like uh, mother teresa or mahatma gandhi it doesn't work that way unfortunately so it's not going to be so easy as as people presume and you know i'm i'm happy to change uh, my mind but i i listened to that interview very carefully uh and uh he gave no evidence in support and i'm not aware of any evidence in support that we know of genes or genetic mechanism for enhanced morality I mean, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I certainly completely agree that there's no obvious link between intellect and compassion or decency. I mean, I suppose that the, the counterpoint would be that we already take drugs to um, control certain human behaviours. Um, so, for example, you know, if, if you suffer from depression, you can take drugs to control that condition. Um, if, if you have, you know, an um, anxiety disorder, you can take drugs. And as we have a better understanding of the workings of the human mind, why is it possible to take something similar or possibly to you know, do something to the brain itself. Once we understand why, for example, we're so tribalistic as a species, we're, we're so inclined to, to kind of separate into groups, be it nations or um, associations, or whatever it is, will it, might it be possible then to turn to tone that down, um, you know, either via drugs or via some kind of modification to ourselves? So, but, but Dan, that again presumes that the cause for that, if we can find it, it presumes that the cause for that is genetic uh, or, or, or chemical, right? Because yeah. if the cause is, let's say, cultural, how can you make cultural changes uh, uh, with pharmacological or genetic uh, changes, right? So it depends on the cause. If we find that the cause is genetic, then obviously you change the gene, you change the, react, the, the effect, right? Because we're talking about cause and effect. But if that if the cause is not genetic, if the cause is not chemical or biochemical, then you're operating on a presumption right now, right? And and, and unfortunately, that's a very popular presumption. And I'm not saying it's impossible that that could be the case. I'm just saying right now we don't have uh, solid evidence that that's the only thing that's going on. Of course, there's a biochemical component, and of course. Uh, there's a certain kind of evolutionary genetic predisposition to all of those behaviors. But it's a lot more than that. And for example, cultural tribalism uh, is maybe some kind of an emergent behavior, uh, an emergent behavior that stems from, yes, our genes and yes, our biochemistry, but also from the culture that we're born and grow up in, and also from the narratives that we embrace as individuals, right? So if you have a sort of a multi-dimensional, multi-level causality here of a very complex interaction between all of those sort of variables, changing only one or two of those variables is not necessarily going to produce the effect that you're going for. So... Sorry, carry on, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. So, so, and that that also applies to happiness. Yes, David Pierce would tell you about the eudaimonic, eudaimonic sort of uh, level or 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 position that uh, 
you know, each person has, you know, and some person are higher on the eudaimonic scale and others are lower due to genetic or biochemical markers and, and what have you. But, but that sort of eudaimonic scale, which is kind of very arbitrary in many, many, many ways, um, and it's only at one level of explanation, that's the biochemical level, uh, is very different from happiness. And even if you do have happiness, right, that uh, even if you're able to manipulate all of those to get, quote, as, as David Pierce was saying, happiness, or the optimum eudaimonic uh, uh, level for each and every individual, that doesn't make, uh, uh, that doesn't make those individuals more moral individuals. It doesn't make them more compassionate. Right, that's completely different. So they may be happy, selfish assholes, you know, who don't give a damn about anyone or anything else, right? And may be perfectly self-satisfied with who they are and what they've got, and may be very happy to be Hitlers or 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 you know, mass murderers, if you will. So uh, and with zero compassion and totally total sociopaths. Right and still be perfectly comfortable and happy, right? So those are very, very different things. We should not conflate them. I mean, a slightly more general question. So obviously, you've been covering the transhumanist movement for you know the best part of a decade, um, and and kind of you know associated subjects around the singularity. I mean, how much do you think the movement's changed over the past decade? Not enough. <laughs> so. <laughs> There, so yes, the, the only changes that we've seen in the movement, in my opinion, uh, are basically that you have more people, uh, you have uh, more popular awareness, and you have more discussion uh, of the pros and cons of transhumanism, of what it means, of the potential conflicts and potential dangers. And that's all good thing. But the movement as a movement, as a philosophical movement, as a, as a, as a kind of a, a intellectual development has not moved at all. And, and, and you can see that basically if you were up to, day, up to date in the extropian circles in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s, you'd pretty much be up to date today, 30 years later, to the major topics of transhumanism. And you'd still had, or even the, the 1990s, when people such as David Pierce and Nick Bostrom founded the World Transhumanist Association, which eventually became Humanity Plus, you still had the same division between left and right. You still had the same, basically, ideas. There's not been any intellectual development. You know, people still... Unfortunately, you see, one of, one of the things that I watch out for, for things like that is how people's minds and positions and opinions have evolved, right? Um, take Max Moore, take Natasha Vitamore, take uh, David Pierce, take Nick Bostrom, take James Hughes, um, very notable individuals um, in the transhumanist movement. Their positions have not evolved substantially you know if you read uh, Max Moore's writings since he was a teenager uh, 
Yes, the only change with Max Moore it has been basically that he's become a little less uh, crazy Ayn Randian right-wing libertarian and a, a little more compassionate and, and more open to to the, the ideas of the left. And, and that's, that's credit to him. That's good for him. But overall, uh, that's in, in the big picture of things, that's not a major change. It's a positive change in my view, which is, of course, arguable overall, because that's only my personal opinion. But it's not a great fundamental change. He hasn't changed his mind on major things. He hasn't come up with major new ideas. He hasn't pushed the idea forward in, in its own development in this way or that way. And the same is true for Nick Bostrom and for all the other guys. You know, so if you want to have a living movement, uh, a living philosophy, you have to make pro progress. And that means progress in one of two ways. First, personal progress, where people's uh, or a person's views evolve in time. I think it's actually more natural for our views to evolve over time than to not evolve. Because if your views don't evolve over time, that means your views are static and that means they're dead. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, transhumanism, in my opinion, very much suffers from that. Uh, and, and secondly, it has to evolve, even not if it doesn't happen within the same person. In the general movement, new people come to the fore, which push the idea forward in a new way, in a new direction. Right. I haven't seen that happen at all. If you read Zoltan stuff. 10 years or 15 years ago, it's the same Ayn Randian, Atlas Shrugged, Fountainhead, you know, nonsense, right? Let's let's uh, sell off all the public parks in California and raise money this way, right? That's his greatest uh, unique idea. I haven't heard a single unique idea from Zoltan uh, during his candidacy of being a president. Not a single unique idea. All of the ideas are somebody else's ideas. And not only that, they're not ideas that are actually designed to make a difference so much as to garner public attention, to, to garner media coverage, right? Uh, so, and, and he's a populist. He's happy to do whatever gains him that attention and whatever puts him in a position of, of attention and power. So if, if the transhumanist movement is stagnating, why do you think that is? You know, I've asked myself that question a lot. I've <laughs> asked myself that question a lot. Um, I can't say I have a good answer. Um, all I can say is that, you know, I'm kind of tired of, 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 of that old school transhumanist thought. Uh, and, and, you know, I, that's why I've lost uh, a lot of sort of interest um, in it. And, and I've, I've, stayed away from the the label i mean I, I generally have aversion to labels but but especially in the last two or three years uh you know i've stayed away from the label transhumanist and even i got invited some time ago like maybe three or four months ago uh to partake in this campaign to called i am transhumanist where certain people you know do a video and then they explain why they are transhumanist and i kind of uh respectfully denied uh, participation in this campaign because I can't call myself, uh, you know, you know, honesty a transhumanist anymore. Not because I I've lost uh, total respect for the movement uh, or, or many of the ideas, but it's just that uh, 
I, I I don't find it so useful and and so guiding to me uh, or informative as per what we are to do in our current context. Yes, there there are good ideas in transhumanism, just like in many other philosophical or intellectual movements. But as I said, they've been rather stale, and and in many cases they're this connected now to to the problems and the reality that we're facing unfortunately in some ways or another and i personally find for example things like stoicism uh, a lot more useful for me personally both in my daily life but also as a guiding principle uh to to my sort of overlook overall look at life the universe and everything a lot yeah. more useful in general philosophical views, maybe not stoicism only, epicureanism, whatever, and there's many other ideas, a lot more useful than and informative than transhumanism. I mean, just one final question. I mean, what do you think the relationship is between transhumanism and kind of one person, one vote democracy? So obviously there's the, the Francis Fukuyama criticism, which is that um, transhumanism will lead to such a divergence in human abilities that we won't be able to survive within a kind of one person, one vote system. We need some new political structure. And that therefore the transhumanist movement could be um, the thing that kills liberal democracy. I mean, do you think there's something to that? Is, is that a legitimate concern? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think that if democracy dies, it would be transhumanism that kills it, right? I, I think that if democracy dies, it would be because a sufficiently large number of people don't care, right? Uh, the, the only thing that's required for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. Yeah. And, and that particularly pertains with respect to democracy. So if people get to the point where they're so apathetic uh, towards our democracy and how beneficial it has been to us uh, and, and how privileged we are to live in a democratic society and focus entirely on the flaws, on the problems, on the shortcomings of the system, uh, then we may well uh, abandon it. Uh, to our own regrets, because uh, unfortunately, we start appreciating something only after we lose it quite often. Uh, that's true for our personal relationships. It may be true for our political systems, because unfortunately, uh, our current generation in power or in, in vote uh, hasn't had the struggles, doesn't appreciate the history, doesn't appreciate the privilege and the benefits that we have all reaped living in democracy you know for me uh this is uh, a, a lot clearer because i grew up for the first 14 years of my life in in uh, the eastern bloc behind the iron curtain under communism and so despite its terrible flaws and shortcomings and issues and stuff uh, democracy is still by far the best of all the alternatives uh, and so whether it would live or die uh I don't know. I think uh, eventually democracy will die uh, just like any other political system has died in the past and it will be replaced by something new and hopefully something better. I don't know exactly what that will be. Hopefully it would have democratic elements and so on. But, uh, you know, we had uh, 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 hunter-gatherer society, we had the agrarian revolution, we had feudalism consequently. 
then we had the industrial revolution and capitalism. Now we have democracy, uh, you know, which democracy was only possible uh, in the context of sort of like uh, uh, the industrial revolution and capitalism and so on. And eventually now with the technological and information revolution, with artificial intelligence and human enhancement, it makes sense that we are going to get to a new uh, socio-economic and political system. You know, if we live in a system with, with much less or maybe even no scarcity, but much more abundance, um, with artificial intelligence, with enhanced humanity and so on and so on, it would make sense that our political and social system would have to evolve too. Uh, and it could be a new democratic system, right? We don't have to start from zero. We could just build on the better part, uh, on the on the useful parts of the old one. Or alternatively, we can simply destroy the democratic system and go back to a sort of a neo feudalism, where a few uh, informational land informational and technological landlords kind of occupy the realm. Uh, and, and and we all become the sort of the new technological serfs uh, or or new technological peasants. That's definitely a possibility. And but if that were to happen, that would happen again not because of uh, its transhumanism's fault, but it would be because sufficiently large number of people have become so apathetic and so ungrateful as per what democracy has provided for us, or maybe so unaware of it, so ignorant of the benefits of democracy, that they would have decided to simply let it go without a fight. And I think that would be our own mistake and to our own detriment. Well, so Nicola, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a really interesting chat. And thank you so much for your time.